Hi, this is Brendan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Jim Pinto, and we're going to be talking about heavy metal for our third episode of Metal Workshop, and we're continuing the discussion of what metal is exactly. This is, we discovered kind of a long topic, and we left out a lot of key things in the first discussion we had on it. So we're going to begin with the question today of, is Alice in Chains heavy metal? I don't know if we left anything out, but we talked for so long, we would have gone hoarse if we'd kept going. I agree. And actually, I was thinking of the second discussion where um, me and Pete were specifically talking about the definition of heavy metal. And we left right. out obvious things like guitar, <laughs> you know, like just, just <laughs> things that are the really basic parts of the definition. Yeah, they're um, so obvious. Yeah. I think the power chord has to be uh, an integral part of metal. Versus the open chord, which you see in rock and roll, by the way. So if you're going to yeah. talk guitars, you have to incorporate that conversation. But we're talking about Alice in Chains. Yeah, and we and should bring I, up that. But I want to talk about power chords and open chords later, because that's a really important distinction. And that's something yeah. that gets really muddy, too. So I'll add that to the discussion list. It does get really muddy, because there's some guys that are playing two strings at a time when they're doing a power chord. And there's guys just playing one and so on. And then you've got Dave Mustaine, who's doing open chords metal um but he's making it work so it's all it's a it's a big stew it's tough yeah so yeah no, it's tricky Jane's answer is long brendan and i apologize that, for that's this. okay go go ahead because I, I find this to be an intriguing topic so I'm, I'm prepared so we have to go all the way back to the 70s and how america defines itself every decade we're constantly going through these shifts and what happens is, is it takes us a couple of years into the new decade to realize that we're we we're letting go or we have to let go of what just happened because things are always I don't want to say they're getting worse but our identity is always getting a little bit dumber as we reach the end of a decade so the 70s was a lot of disco a mm -hmm. lot of horrible horrible disco and punk and metal come along in the late 70s but they're not really there's no groundswell for them yet until around 1980 through 1984. That's when they get really big. And then punk turns into new wave for people who can't handle the aggressive tone of punk. So you have bands like The Cure who really revolutionized music. I'm not gonna, we can't talk about them for too long, but we have to at least admit how important they were to music in general. Um, and I'm talking with my hands over here and you can't see it. Oh, no. I, okay. That's so funny. Well, so, one day we'll get your camera working, and then we'll we'll be able to incorporate we'll never get my camera. I don't I don't want people to see how ugly I am. Well, Look they can't they, see you on the podcast. It's a... <laughs> um. So you have this rejection of the seventies, right? Mm. New new wave and punk are a rejection of disco. They everybody wants to forget that disco ever happened because it got so stupid. The giant bell bottoms and the glass heels and the, the music got so repetitive and dumb. So the 80s has to define itself again. Okay. And that takes a while to define. That hair metal ruins all of that. And so the 90s come along and grunge immediately just destroys everything hair metal and glam metal. And in the process, gets rid of regular metal as well, regular heavy metal, which takes a long time to find itself. So Alice in Chains is... I think technically metal because of a lot of things they're doing, although there's this 
weird distortion and his voice is doing things that you wouldn't normally do in metal. Yeah, there's a lot of wah wah, right? Like they yeah, use there's it, like, a lot of like, wah wah. Like like only Kurt Hammett can get away with that much wah wah. I think and still be regarded as metal, and you know it it it, it it you it's definitely it's like it's it almost adds like a banjo twang to the to the sound <laughs> right, of music right. you know um and you know they have enough big hits and they come in at just the right time that i think they get swept up in the grunge movement just like soundgarden i don't think soundgarden's a grunge band soundgarden sounds like black sabbath if yeah, you're objective they've, they've, about them they've got a lot of doom chords going on but they also have a lot of big open chords which we're going to talk about later so the struggle there is that the metal umbrella has to open up a little bit to fit these bands under there. Mm-hmm. And then when you start opening the umbrella, is it still metal or, or are these, are these bands pushing the boundaries of what metal is? Or are we opening the umbrella wider to accept them into the canon? And that's always the tough part about defining who is and who is not metal. Well, I feel like metal kind of did both at the same time in the 90s. It kind of expanded, but it also kind of shrunk in an odd way. Like, it really got marginalized during the 90s. And, yeah, 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 yeah. There was somebody that had a really great video online. I don't remember who it was. He was talking about how the puritanical fans are what kept metal alive in the 90s. Mm. If they didn't exist, it would have died. That's true. That's 100% true. I mean, I, I, I was one of those puritanical fans, and it was Slim Pickens... And it was yeah. it was a grim grim time because like if you were if you were if you were like that you you just one by one were watching all of your favorite bands sort of succumb to what, at yeah. the time to you felt like you know an invasion of music you know it's sort of like it, there was this line between grunge and metal right that was sort of formed, um, but you know toward the end of the nineties I think that line softened considerably. Um, yeah, you know, and I think by now for most people, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's, but, but I do think if you didn't have people that were really puritanical and maybe a little closed minded about it, uh, it probably, it probably wouldn't have been preserved in that, that sort of form. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but also you did have like the new metal bands that came in and like, you had a lot of new stuff that sort of, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big new metal guy, but there was definitely like new things going on in the late nineties that that allowed for that style of music to kind of continue, I suppose. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, if you go back far enough, uh, emo starts with Fugazi. And a lot of people may not realize that that's what happened. And there's a lot of these bands today in the NU metal, the new metal. That's what you're talking about, right? New yeah, metal, yeah. Is it NU? I always call it new. I... It's new metal to distinguish that you're talking about that actual mm. genre and not just a new type of metal. Um, I think there's a lot of bands that didn't know that what they were making was going to turn into Slipknot and Five Finger Death Punch and so on. Yep. I don't think Fugazi would have done what they were doing if they knew it was going to turn into emo. Well, I mean, there's no there's no telling where things will go. I mean, I remember, like, there were a few bands that sort of, and I, I again, I, I, we haven't actually talked about these kind of bands, so it's kind of interesting to for me to get your opinion now. I, I sort of had conflicted feelings when the new metal stuff was coming out because on the one hand, I could see that it was it was reinvigorating something that was clearly dying. But on the other hand, I, I didn't really like the aesthetic all that much. 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know some, but I I like like uh, System of a Down. I remember liking them when they came out, if only because they had like the aggression. Do you know what I mean? They had like the yeah. the aggressive attitude in what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the other bands I liked because I felt like they were at least resurrecting some of these techniques. Like you might still hear a death growl as used as a technique rather than as like they're constantly doing it in the whole song. Um, but you're you're hearing it on the radio. Do you know what I mean? Which was kind of cool. Um, right. So. But yeah, I, I would say my answer about Alice in Chains is I, I feel like they're really on the line. But I think that to me they're they're I've always thought of them as a bit metal, and the reason is I think they they preceded the grunge boom a little bit, didn't they? When when Man in a Box came out, wasn't that wasn't that like right before Nirvana got big, or am I mistaken? No, Nirvana is the band that opens it all up. Uh, you Man in the Box comes right afterwards, but uh, okay, okay. But uh, for, without without oh, Teen Spirit, we don't hear any of these songs. Well, I remember Teen Spirit coming up, but for some reason, I just I I remember Alice in Chains as a like just a different sound when I saw them, and for some reason, I've always assumed that they were that that they came out right before that. But uh, but either way, the the sound and even the look of the band, it just felt more metal to me. And I think again, a lot of it is the fact that uh there was like an there was a and i'm not the hugest alice in chains fan i only know the stuff that was on the radio and and right. things that maybe my friends played but what i saw it it had an attitude to it that just felt more in the camp of metal to me than than grunge like whenever i would watch the grunge bands they always kind of seemed a little goofy do you know what i mean they were always there was always a humor element that was really strongly present in the things that they were doing when they were marketing their material like on mtv and stuff and Alice in Chains seemed a little bit more like serious songwriters, if that makes sense. Not that the yeah, grunge bands yeah, yeah. weren't serious, but just that it just, they just felt like they had more of a metal vibe to me. Um, but it's complicated because there's definitely stuff in there that's not metal to me. So it's a it's a tr- it's a real tricky band to to categorize. Yeah, yeah, I think that they are they they and Tool are another band where. And there's a band that kept the '90s alive, right? With they, metal. But yeah, and I, I saw them live. A lot of new life. I saw was them. That, I saw them at Lollapalooza, uh, at like '97, I think, or I forget. I was when they, there. Which one were you at? I was at Lollapalooza too. I was in the one in Massachusetts. So I was at both both of them at Irwindale in Southern California. I went both days. Oh, okay. So yeah, I I there there were a lot of drugs floating through the you know there's there's a there's yeah. a lot going on that day so um you know i might as well have been in southern california but i remember uh what's his name the singer came out uh dressed up like a kabuki performer it was it was a really cool stage presence that he had yeah. and um no i the thing that was kind of nice about them and i i saw i did lose interest in them after a while because i felt i did find them to be a little bit repetitive after like i got one i, I think i had their first two albums and then by the third, I was starting to lose a little bit of interest, but but they their earlier stuff actually sounded pretty metal to me, and yeah, yeah, yeah. and the thing just that I found intriguing about them as a guitarist was I really had trouble humming their guitar melodies. Do you know what I mean? Like I right. couldn't track it in my head, even though it still felt powerful and impressive. And so I almost felt like like I kind of felt bad for the Tool guitarist because on the one hand. He was doing all these interesting sonic things, but he wasn't like putting his stamp on it the way a guitarist normally would. Do you know what I mean? There was like a, um, the, the, he was kind of allowing the other instruments to shine in a way guitarists don't normally do in metal. Right. Um, so, 
you know, the, it, it was, I, I found it odd, but I found it intriguing. Um, but I would agree and, with and that's you. one of their staples, right? Is to let everybody, everybody the, shine. They're like the Jack Johnson of heavy metal, right? Like, you know, you know remember that band, Jack Johnson? Was that the name of the yeah. band? Uh, vaguely. I, I kind of, I got the metaphor. But yeah, you know, like their, their whole thing was, you could tell all of the instruments were balanced, right? It was like a perfect balance of the instruments. And I feel like you're right. Tool kind of does that. They, uh, it's one of the few bands where people will actually listen to the drummer. Do you know what I mean? Like people, yeah. people who are into Tool will often be really into the drummer or really into the bassist, and that's that's not often the case with music. Usually, it's the singer and the guitarist that get the attention. So I, I, I want to go off the beaten track just for a second here and talk about drummers, because when we were growing up in the in the eighties and listening to metal in the seventies and eighties, drumming wasn't really that important. It was an anchor but it was kind of repetitive and mm. not as creative. And then somehow in the last 20 years, drummers have exploded in talent. And you have a drummer, I don't remember his name, from Gojira. He, he's a machine. The guy from Opeth is a frickin' machine. You've got uh, Mike Portnoy and Mark Zonder, who are two of the greatest drummers of all time. And I know Neil Peart's going to go down in history as everybody's favorite, but these guys are showing more technical acumen than Neil showed at his peak. And I think that that has a lot to do with these people being able to pay attention to what Neil did, breaking down uh, uh, traditions and making things anew, that they're learning from everything that he did. And so drummers all of a sudden are just, they're just dominating, in my opinion, in some of these bands. I mean, drumming's really important, and you don't notice it until you have a bad drummer in a band. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's <laughs> right. one of those things people don't... You know, you know what? You can't... Again, it goes to the humming thing. You can't really hum a drum track. Do you know what I mean? And so I think, right. like, the thing that gets more of the attention is the melody. You know, I was in bands. I, I played guitar, and I, I am not very rhythmically gifted at all. So I sort of struggle to even appreciate good drummers. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. uh, you know, for all my musical experience... I, I had a cousin, I, have, I come from a very musical family, and I have two cousins, uh, they're both brothers, and one of them is a drummer, one of them is a guitarist and a bass player, but also has played the drums, and I used to rely on them to sort of help guide me through who are the good drummers, because I really couldn't tell until they started pointing out, oh, listen to this syncopated rhythm, or what this guy is doing here, right. um, you know, and they and they were both really into the drummer from Tool when they were first coming out. Yeah, um, he's absolutely amazing. Yeah, he was, and and he was one where you don't need to know much about drumming to listen and be like, oh, that's pretty impressive. You can, yeah. it's just interesting to the ear. Do you know what I mean? You don't necessarily yeah. even need to know how time signatures work to appreciate it, just at a basic level. Right. Um, now, do you do you find that like like because I'm curious, like uh, you know, you said you don't play instruments, right? But you but but you but you seem to have a lot of knowledge of what goes into making these instruments work. So when you're listening to a band that has a good drummer, what are you looking for exactly? Like, what are the things that are appealing to you? Uh, well, first of all, um, I, I did play a little guitar when I was a kid, but I just, I, I didn't have the, I didn't have the discipline for it as a child. Uh, but my father was a concert level acoustic guitar player. Okay. And, okay. and so I grew up listening to that kind of music. So my, my ears attuned if not trained it's not trained but it's attuned to that sort of that 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 level of quality i got to see los indios tabajaras as a very young child and they're two of the greatest guitar players in the the classical sense of all time uh 
for me, I'm I'm listening for the things that break the four four patterns. The the one yeah. the the things that either take me out of the four four pattern or at least make the four four pattern interesting. So I'm not listening to Taylor Swift, right? Okay. Because <laughs> yep, es- yep, yep. essentially, there's no difference between Warrant and Katy Perry. There really isn't. It Warrant just has more distortion. But it's yeah, the yeah, same, I would, I would agree the with same, that. I would agree it, with that. It's the same style of songwriting. It's the same patterns. It's and you could have had a drum machine in place. A lot of these glam metal drummers, they and the bass players became useless. That's one of the things that really bothered me about the the mid the mid eighties was Judas Priest. Just Ian Hill from there's a bass player from Judas Priest. He just disappeared from the band. You can't hear him at all after British or, Steel. Or look at um, Injustice for All. I mean, you know, it's famously, yeah. you know, people question if there's even bass on the album. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, and yeah, so I, well, I, I think this would be an interesting segue into, I know we're going to get into other things, but you would mention math as an essential feature of your definition of heavy metal. And I was really yeah. curious what you meant by that exactly, because I, I, I think I know, and we did talk about it a little bit, but I'm still wrapping my head around it. And, you know, you're talking about time signatures in 4-4. So um, do you, were, you, were you meaning that, like, the thing that that defines metal is is using a lot of these unusual time signatures and deviating from common time? If you listen to... You, yeah, deviating from common time is certainly one of the, the features of true metal. Um, uh, and, um, Master of Puppets is technically in 4-8 time, I believe, if you look at any of the sheet music. I'm trying to remember the exact number. Maybe it's 8-4. I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to find it while you're talking. Uh, I, and I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, tr- I'm trying to wrap my head around because I always get the two confused. I'll do that a lot. I'm not a sheet music genius, um, or anything like that. So, the thing that ends up happening with metal is, especially a band that that's, that is that tight, is the song actually ends up being in 1732 time because of the, if you're listening very closely, they're sneaking in an extra note between two, between two other jagged sounding notes Mm -hmm. because they've been working together so long that their timing is, is sharp enough that they can, they can, uh, they can fill in those, they can smooth out those, those, those situations where the where the timing becomes seventeen thirty two instead of four eight. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. So metal's already doing weird things with math, and I think Dillinger Escape Plan is just an incredible version of that because I think they have a song that's in uh, I want to say thirty three sixty four or sixty four thirty two or something really obnoxious. Mm-hmm. They go out of their way. If you if you look at the sheet music, and I it's been a while since I've looked at. It. I haven't listened to them in years. But I remember when they were coming up and somebody was saying, you really need to listen to this band. I was trying to absorb as much as I could because his voice was so bad. And I said, what is it makes this band so great? And I had to go and listen. And so breaking it down, breaking it down is so difficult. Talking about this, defining it is so difficult because these bands are so good at fucking with the math that you, if you notice they were fucking with the math, it wouldn't sound good. It would sound like they didn't know what they were doing. If okay. that makes sense. No, no. Rush I... YYZ is done in 22-7 time. And that's what first, first of all, that's insane. Who would do that? Um, 
But if they were bad at what they were doing, it would sound awful. Now, but they this... find a way to bring those those patterns back so that by the end of the seventh measure, all of those notes make sense. Now, do you think this is prevalent through all subgenres of metal, or is it mainly like progressive and thrash and the more technically oriented subgenres? I I think any of the technical and and heavy metal genres, the true heavy metal genres, they play with math at some level. Mm. Progressive certainly more than anybody. Brutal metal likes to fuck with timing. I think uh, I think if you're just a grindcore band, you're just trying to play as fast as you can. Yeah. You're not really trying to mess with timing. How, how much of it does it have to be conscious? Like, because a lot of, because, because, I mean, so just for people who don't understand, like, the rates that he's talking, these are incredibly fast uh, notes that we're talking about. Too fast to even think about. Like, you can't, yeah. if you're, your hand has to be doing the thinking for you when you're, when you're playing, you know, stuff off of Master the Pu- Master of Puppets or something. You know, it's, it, or, or the, the much faster uh, songs that he was just talking about. Um, so as a player a lot of times that's not something that i'm actively thinking about i'm just i just sort of know this is this kind of a rhythm and i'm sort of doing it do you know what i mean or it's not necessarily a thought in my head uh how important to you as a listener is it that the band is actually conscious of the time signature that they're writing for do you know what i mean that it didn't just kind of fall into place as a result of the band being in sync with the central riff that's being constructed no. 19-year-old Jim would have told you it's very important. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think so. I think making a cohesive whole, the gestalt of the music, is so much more important. I think Tool, vastly aware of it. Yeah. Lateralis is done in five time according to the Fibonacci sequence. So they knew exactly what they were doing when they were writing that song. Hmm. So it goes uh, one note, then two notes, then three notes, then five notes then eight notes, then 13 notes, then back down to eight, then down to five, three, two, one, all in five time. So that time signature, first they're playing in one five time, then two five time, then three five time. And because they're doing it in the right amount of layers, when they come back down to one, everybody is caught back up with one another. Okay. No, that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that does. No, and Tool is highly mathematical. I remember because yeah, yeah. I, I, and again, I, I don't really. Uh, have the uh, the the aptitude to appreciate good drumming, but just as a musician listening to that band, I I was you know blown away by the the level of technical expertise the drummer had, especially when my cousins were explaining to me exactly what was going on. Um, so I, I I think oh by the way to uh, to just bring it back to Master of Puppets, I did look it up, and again it's the internet. I'm going by some of the first sources that I'm finding, but it looks like there's actually a lot of debate over what the time signature of that song is. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's why I used it. It's because yeah. I've watched a lot of videos of people talking about it. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, oh no. So no. But say it's, it's the question is whether it's four four or five eight. Um, and it ha- and I guess it all has to do with. Uh, I think you had mentioned something about this earlier in your, uh, but something, some kind of extra note that might be in there, depending on whether you're counting everything as eighth notes and it gets very technical and I would need to mm-hmm. sit and look at the sheet music to actually, I do have it in front of me, but I have to actually sit there and think about it for a moment to comment on it intelligently. But, uh, and it's but, the most famous riff in all of metal, right? Everybody knows master of puppets. Yeah, I would say, I would say, I mean, I think it's I think it's one of the, I think also the opening of that album 
Battery is pretty famous too. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to think of it. I mean, there's, but it's up. The, it's definitely got to be one of the most recognizable riffs. Um, and and that that sort of brings me to the other topic, which is I think metal is riff based. I think you know, and I, and this I think is where we would want to get into the topic of power chords and open chords and and all right. that. But I I feel like with heavy metal, it's got to be based on riffs, and I think that's the thing that that's really what separates metal from say like Jimi Hendrix or something. Do you know what I mean? Where, you know, there's a lot of the virtuosity with somebody like Hendrix and there's a lot of the power and a lot of the other elements. He's lighting his guitar on fire. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but, sure, yeah, yeah. but, but it doesn't feel like metal because he's sort of doing the traditional thing where he's flowing between having like maybe an opening riff or an opening melody, but then going into playing the guitar as it was traditionally intended to be played. Do you know what I mean? With, with chords and that right. are sort of alternating between melodic lines and, you know, a visible chord progression. Uh, almost a little bit more like when you listen to like a classical guitarist play. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and, but, but heavy metal, the riffs are sort of prevalent throughout the music. You know, you, so I think, I, and, and I think that's where the power, and, and they're often power chord based riffs, you know? So, it, it, I think that that's a uh, you know another key feature of the genre. Yeah, and I think we can uh, we can thank Richie Blackmore for that and Tony Iommi, right? Because is that Iommi or Iani? I always call him Iommi, but I'm not good with names. Okay, so. yeah, okay, fair enough. It's it's uh, probably Yomi or something. It's probably like the the I is pronounced like a Y or something unusual. But I'll look it I up. I think he's the only Tony in in. in metal and pre-metal so we'll just call him tony <laughs> so you got tony and blackmore right who are who are marrying their music really well with the baseline uh at their time and they're sort of the inventors of at least the progenitors of, of making riffs that sound like this uh, especially tony i mean the stuff he was doing well like you know like that kind of stuff is just yeah you know um, he's inventing four different subgenres of metal uh, in, on just a couple of albums. They're not really inventing them, but you know what I mean. He's become he's laying the groundwork. Yeah. And if we can't honor the work that he's doing at that level back then, and then you've got, I always keep going back to Judas Priest one because I love them, and two because I've really studied how they got where they they are. Their first album wasn't metal at all. It was called Rock and Roll. Yeah, I, I remember when I listened to that album, I was like, what the hell is this? This doesn't sound yeah. like Judas Priest. You know, it it was, took that long time to get where they were to find their sound. You know what that's like? It's like when you have you ever seen the crooner band that um, Dio was in before he was in metal? I have. I have yeah. actually. It's, so, it's like these guys, these guys were around before metal existed, before rock yeah. and roll even existed in a lot of cases. So this stuff is still developing and it's, it, it, you know, it, it, it's, it must've been a totally different thing to be there as, as it's being carved out rather than after the fact where we're kind of, we sort of have hindsight to guide us into, okay, this is what metal is supposed to be about. But, you know, a band like Judas Priest is actively figuring out what metal is as they go. Um, which I think is almost more fascinating than, you know, listening to a band that has the privilege of, you know, there's this whole history of the genre. And so you can kind of, you know, draw on any period of metal to, to sort of cobble together your band. Right. And I, I think maybe that's one of the attractions of say, not emo music, but all the hipster music that comes out of emo when those kids grow up 
is they think they're inventing new sounds because they keep in their mind are pushing all these envelopes mm-hmm. to try to see where they can take their speak and spell band, how far they can take it. Um, and I think it ends up because people think they're inventing something new. They're, they're trapped in the patterns of the artist being more important than the art versus okay. people who don't even know that they're inventing something new. They're just exploring. Uh, if you're in a band in high school, you're, you go into your garage and you just keep practicing and practicing and trying to play what it is that you like. And eventually you get good enough to say, I want to try to write a song. Yep. And I'll use Tool as an example because actually, I've actually watched uh, videos of them talking about the process of, of um, McGannon. What's the Voivod Tool guitar player's name? Uh, I don't looking know his it up. name. Daniel Mongrain. Daniel Mongrain. So Mongrain and the bass player will get in the, the studio first before the drummer even comes in and they'll, they'll, they'll come up with a riff. doesn't matter what it is. They'll just pick some notes and they'll start playing a riff and they'll stretch that riff in every direction they possibly can mm-hmm. within every time signature they can at every pace that they can, every tempo and he'll pull back and let the, the, the bass player put on some layers and they'll just keep practicing it at every direction that they possibly can for, say, six hours. And then they'll stop and go, is that any good? Is anything in there something that we can use? And they either throw it away and start over or they find a way to make it work and then they bring in the drummer. And now it's time to make layer, layer this and make a track, mm-hmm. right? And when you get there, I think... I think you don't know you're inventing new music. I don't think you realize that you're making something so different that you get to the point. First of all, Tools are another of my favorite bands, and I appreciate that you don't like them. I get why you don't. Well, I didn't say I don't Tool like them. So I, I, I do like Tool. I do like Tool. I just, uh, over time, I, I lost interest in them as their career went on. Right, but I get I, it. But I like them. I do like them. It, oh. Eventually, you get to the point where Tool today sounds nothing like Tool back then. Mm-hmm. But it's the same guys making the same music. I, the bass player's new. He's different than the guy on the first album. Well, the guy on the um, first album wasn't as good as the guy on the second album, in my opinion. The, right. Yeah. No, no, no. I, yeah. Um, and I think the drummer's different than they first started with, too. I don't remember. I don't look at their timelines very well. But I was there for one of the ba- the bass player's last performances. I was at, at one of their shows a mm. long time ago. Um, and I think a band like Tool is inventing something new without worrying about the we need to be different. Yeah, their love of creation is what leads to something different, and that I think is what we can say about going all the way back to your original point about these croners in in Dio's original band who didn't even know they were going to grow into metal because metal wasn't a thing yet. The love of creation for these guys in an era that was so. I mean, the the '50s and the mid '60s were just so devoid of creativity that you have people so hungry to make something and then drugs, of course, open everybody's minds and they're seeing things differently. I think metal even developing at all is in some ways an accident because of the, the thirst for creativity, which you can't find in a world where people are trying to be different for the sake of being different, as opposed to trying to create art for the sake of creating art. I think those are two different paths to success. So, like, that uh, was a long answer. No, no, but I think you're onto something there because the whole uh, 
and Pete was sort of touching on this in his answer to what metal is when he was talking about the attitude, but the 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 motivation is 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 not just about uh, you know. I'm going to sort of carve out this 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 space to be different, but there needs to be sort of something a little bit more authentic going on, um, you know, yeah. un- underlying everything. But you had said something about how people create differently now, almost. I, I think that's what you said. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. I feel like now when people are creating a new thing, they actively combine two ingredients that are different in order to produce something new. Um, so, for right. example, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I said, yeah, right. Yeah, so like, you know, people will say, well, I'm going to take this subgenre and I'm going to mash it up with this subgenre and then it'll be my new sound that I've created. Do you know what I mean? And there's always been that combining of things, but I feel like the difference before was people, they arrive there with all of their influences and after the fact, you can sort of dissect what the influences are. So you can look at like, randy Rhodes, right you can say oh yeah i can see the classical influence there or you can look at like some of the weird poppy music we were getting in the mid 80s and say oh that's a combination of classical and 50s music sort of being put in a blender together but it wasn't necessarily conscious and i i, I feel like when it's overly conscious it it it, it the, the end result more often than not has an artificial feeling to it do you know what i mean it's a um yeah yeah so yeah. And I think I I was really noticing, and it wasn't just in music. I was noticing it in role-playing. I was noticing it in movies. I think the best example that I could think of is Cowboys and Aliens. Do you know what I mean? Where it's just like, we're just going to put these two concepts together, and that's it. Um, It's sort of like... You have stumbled onto my favorite topic. So I can talk about mashups all day, if you want. uh, Well, yeah, let's talk about mashups, because I think (laughs) it's... I'm I'm fine getting into that that territory. Uh, Well, it's not going to be... This is going to go off the rails of music. Are you okay with that? That's okay. I do want to get back to open chords eventually, but I'm fine with this topic. <laughs> um, I think I think that I talk about this a lot. There's a big difference between I, I'm going to stop saying the word think. There's a big difference between genre and veneer. Veneer is a piece of genre. Mm-hmm. Genre is made up of structure and veneer. So if I say I'm making a fantasy movie, it probably needs to have elves and humans and dwarves. Maybe the other outlying races aren't that important, but it can't have aliens. If okay. I put aliens in it, it's not fantasy anymore, mm-hmm. right? There's a certain structure to, to fantasy. It's usually the hero's journey, right? Somebody finds something out that they're not supposed to know, or they have a map to something, or they've discovered something that needs to be forged or destroyed, the, the 36 plots apply to fantasy really, really well, but there's always a structure of I have to meet somebody early on in the story who knows more than me and gives me some helpful advice, all of the Baba Yaga character from – because we get all of our fantasy tropes, by the way, from Eastern Europe. The Slavs invented this kind of uh, of storytelling, and then Hans Christian Andersen borrowed it all on fairy tales, and then – Fantasy grew out of all that. I can talk genre all fucking day. Okay. Uh, uh, so the veneer of fantasy gets wrapped up too much in actual fantasy. If you read trash genre novels today that have an elf on the cover and inside the whole thing reads out like a romance novel, that's not fantasy. It's borrowing the veneer, but it's yeah. not following the structure. And <clears throat> So is your contention want- that the ven- that mashups are just putting the veneers together or that's what i'm getting is that mashups almost 
inherently. And I wrote a mashup screenplay, which is where I'm going to finally get to with this. Uh Um, When you look at Cowboys and Aliens, there's no Western tropes and there's no science fiction tropes in that movie. It is just the veneer of the two being smashed together and in equal parts, by the way. And this is why mashups fail. People want to make them half and half. And that's not good mashup. Mashup needs to be closer to three quarters and one quarter, or maybe one yeah. third and two thirds. You have to pick the, the, the structure that's more important to you and then pull the pieces of the veneer that work. Not all of them. You cannot pull all of them into your work um, and then have a successful thing. So if I uh, – Faith No More was a mashup band of, of some rap and metal. Yeah. And if it had been 100% rap and 100% metal mashed together, it probably wouldn't have worked. Death Row or Death Row was uh, Ice T's metal band. It it wasn't good because it was a 50-50 mixture of the two. Is that but is that different no, from? Are you thinking of Body Count or is that a different band? Body Count. That's yeah. a Death Row was somebody else. Sorry. That's okay. Body Count was the name of his band. Um, Faith No More is mostly hardcore rock and metal mixed with a little bit of rap. And I went to high school, by the way, with with uh, with Dave, um, and so I knew them when they were. He was in Mr. Bungle. Uh, What's your feeling I, on Mr. Bungle, by the way? Uh, well, I was friends with these guys when I was growing up, so it's hard for me to divorce myself yeah. from seeing where they were when they started, you know, and how long it took them to develop their sound. But at the time, I didn't like it simply mm. because I was such a metal purist. Mm. But they were all good at what they were doing. I mean, I can't deny that 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 band, not that band, the album California. I remember getting that, and I was very impressed by just the the array of transitions in the music. Um, and the you know again, it gets sort of maybe back to the time signature thing. But they seemed capable of dipping into like eight different genres in a single song. Um, but maybe by your reasoning in this argument, that's a bad thing. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry. Go on, though. Go on. So I think if they had tried to marry those sounds half and half, I don't think it would have worked mm-hmm. um, in any of those bands. And the reason Faith No More works is because they've got they're picking up some of the grooves. I'm really getting off topic now. Are you familiar with Husker Du, the punk band? I am not. I don't know that much about punk. I do know about Faith No More because I had that album. Um, right. With I forget the name of it, but the one with the, the inverted candles on the cover that had the epic song on it. Yeah, I don't I don't remember the name of any of their albums, but I think it was just well, I don't know. It wasn't even their first album, so Yeah, they the first a, one had like a, a guy with a mohawk, I think, and yeah. had that uh We Care a Lot song on it. Um Yeah. So Husker Du was a punk band from Minneapolis. I think their first album, Land Speed Record, was I want to say 1982, uh-huh. somewhere in there. And punk was already on its way out. And then they showed up and they had a completely different sound that nobody had heard before in punk. And they didn't reinvigorate it, but they certainly put their stamp on it. Okay. And then I don't remember if Metal Circus came next or was it Zen Arcade? Doesn't matter. Zen Arcade is quintessential, the greatest album of all time. I, I won't even let people debate me on this. If you don't listen to it or you're not familiar with it, I've probably studied the album for a thousand hours. What's the name of the album again? It, a Zen Arcade. Zen Arcade, okay. It looks like they're walking through a junkyard if you look at the cover. Um, it sounds nothing like punk. 
It sounds nothing like funk. It sounds nothing like jazz. It sounds nothing like reggae. It sounds nothing like metal or rock or any of these elements that they pulled in to make that album. It mm-hmm. th- You will never hear a sound like it. It is so impossible to quantify what that album is. And yet, they pulled all those elements together in the right ingredients, knowing how to form a recipe and make it into a finished dish is the quintessential ability to to do a mashup. Okay. And if you put if you took two ingredients and put them in a bowl and they were equal parts lettuce and tomato, that would be a horrible salad. Yep. Nobody wants to eat that much tomato and or nobody wants to eat that much lettuce. Right? It you have to, the, the salad is usually made up of mostly lettuce or mostly cabbage or whatever it is that you're doing with a sprinkling of all these other little ingredients. And that's the problem people make. And I should have started with this metaphor. That's what okay. people make with mashups is this, this desire to get all their favorite things into the same bowl. And, and I, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was going to add that. I think the other mistake people make now that I'm thinking about this is that they think that being creative is the act of adding things together and they never think to subtract anything. Do you know what I mean? And like you were yeah. talking, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago about Judas Priest and how a lot of how they helped to shape metal was by taking the blues out, right? So yeah. it's not just about mashing up. You know, you, a simpleton might look at metal and say it's a mashup of the blues and this and that and, you yeah. know, whatever styles of music they think contribute to heavy metal. But But a lot of it's actually, no, it's about we're taking out this stuff. We're taking out the stuff that doesn't feel like heavy metal to us. And it's been, it's sort of a slow process of discovering exactly what that is. Um, and so I Coco think there's, Ch- oh, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Coco Chanel once said, when you get dressed in the morning, take off one item and now you're ready to go out <laughs> because she understood is Coco a he or she? I she. have no idea. I, I think Coco's a she. <laughs> I'm not a fashion guy, but I, I read things and I pay attention to what's going on in all worlds of art. Um, because she understood that nobody really knows how to dress themselves and they usually over accessorize. So, uh, knowing what, without having to teach somebody all the elements of design, knowing that people overdo it, she knew just, just take the glitter off and you're ready to go. And Picasso once said, before you can learn to create art, you must learn how to draw. You must master the process of drafting something. And it doesn't have to be a person. It could be an apple. It could be a pear. It could be a table. But if you can't draw that thing perfectly every time, you will never be able to change it once you learn what the process of change is. And that, to Picasso, was art, was the process of change, right? So the all of these forms of creation, every single – I'm, I'm going to go to game design now because mm-hmm. I'm just on a roll today. Okay. All right. uh, just too much. I'm all hopped up on tea. <laughs> um there's a lot of game designers that keep reinventing the wheel, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I'm not going to pick on Fade. I pick on Fade a lot, but I'll you pick, pick on, on Fade. I don't care. Uh, you know, pick so, on Fade if you want. Fudge was a genius system. Mm-hmm. The original Fate system was called Fudge. It understood exactly what had been going wrong with traditional role playing games for years, and it said, "I'm going to make a rule system that addresses 800 different flaws, and I'm going to reduce it down to its essence." And I'm going to give game masters the tools that they need. The problem was, is it was a game for really good game masters. It was not a game for bad game masters, right? It didn't, if you were bad at game, 
mastering this this was just going to make you worse and by the way that's often where a lot of debates in gaming center around is really the quality of the gm involved Um, right and but that requires self-reflection and we know that nerds (laughs) and geeks don't aren't very good at self-reflection actually so you can't look at a book and go what is it i can use from this they look at a book and go these are all rules i have to use it all yes and again we're back to the recipe uh, metaphor of knowing what ingredients to take and which ingredients not to take. You won't use every single monster in the monster manual in an adventure. Everybody knows that. You pick and choose the monsters in the monster manual. No, I gotta go say, together. if somebody the promise of an evening where every monster in the monster manual is used is is has my curiosity peaked. But yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right on that one. Um, so. I, I'm, I'm losing my thread. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I did, I, well, no, no you, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go, yeah, you go ahead. Oh, no, I, I was just going to say you, you were, um, you were, you were going in the direction of, you know, how, uh, uh we were talking about game master quality and. So, so modern designers need for some reason to reinvent the wheel every single time. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to use the new brand of hipster designers who have been around actually for over a decade now. When they first started showing up on the scene, and I'll use um, Ron Edwards as an example, the guy that okay. used to run the Forge, he sat down and wrote a, a treatise on all this language for game design because one did not exist. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that he sat down and wrote one because a lot of the stuff that he wrote changed the way we talk about game design. But a lot of the people that came afterwards who were designing were reinventing the wheel for things that already existed. And so you'll you'll have a lot of people who don't have they don't have the mastery of the craft yet and they already want to change the craft. And a lot of these hipster games that you see coming out, I'll use Fiasco as an example. Okay. Fiasco attempted to do something really cool. As its mission statement, if you it, it is a really cool goal. It at no point addresses the fact that there have always been players at the table who want to fuck shit up and ruin other people's fun, and you just gave them the biggest hammer to ever do that, ever yep. create. And now it's a gateway game to indie and non-traditional role-playing, and people think all indie gaming and all non-traditional gaming is about fucking up other people's fun. And so it's the... Well, yeah, you have the science to do this, but should you should you do this mm-hmm. question that people the trope that people throw around a lot, and people constantly trying to reinvent the wheel that's already been invented without knowing the pieces that have been invented. Which, which I, by the way, is sort of I can see how that happens a lot because the gaming community has historically been so fragmented that right. you know there's just there are people that have been in their own corner doing things one way and people in another corner, and you know. And a lot of the stuff that goes on online, people are completely unaware of. So, right. you know, there's, but, but go on. No, and I, I, and I think that's eventually going to happen as we get more and more fractured. I Getting all the way back to music, I think people trying to reinvent the wheel of how the structure of sound works. Mm. You can't just, I love Indian music. I love uh, Bagra, uh, Sikh music as well. And I understand the structure of how they work. I would never think to pull, and because I'm not a good enough musician, mm-hmm. but I would never even think to pull the the three beat style of a bhangra music from from the Punjab 
into heavy metal. And I've heard people trying to do it online and they have to make so many, so many surgical maneuvers through the music to make them mesh. It has to be complimentary is the issue. Um... Yeah, they have to come. Exactly. Exactly. It, I've, I've seen people have to make all these, these dancing surgical moves through the, the music that essentially you're just borrowing the veneer of something. You're not no. borrowing the heart of it. Well, and, oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, if you look at, like, you know, Yngwie Malmsteen and these people that were taking all the classical stuff, that fit like a glove. Like, Baroque yes. music just fits over metal fine. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, you know, again, it when you, when you are going to combine things, you really got to see, is this a good fit? I think that's... We talked about Load a little bit last uh, last time. I think that's right. why an album like Load didn't work for so many people because they were combining music that didn't. It was sort of like, uh, you know, it, it was like two different flavor palettes coming together that just weren't meant to be combined. And you have to be aware of are these are these palettes, you know, a, a fitting combination or is this is this such a like rich you know, uh, stew that I'm drawing from that it's just not going to work when I put cheese on it. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So, so I could see how, I mean, and, and also, I mean, I'm, I'm curious what that music sounds like. Cause you say people are trying to pull it off, but I can definitely see how there would be, you know, musical structures and styles that just are not going to lend themselves to metal, no matter how hard you try. Uh, well, what is happening is the people that are doing it are in the Punjab, right? Mm -hmm. So they're taking the, their beat, structure mm -hmm. and then they're just borrowing the death growls and the distortion from metal and those are those aren't the heart of metal those are just some of the trappings oh, of the veneer i see what metal, you're saying the growls and the distortion there's a guy that does he takes um he's online i forget his name joe something he takes pop songs and then plays them on his daughter's little toy instruments and then he calls it metal because of the distortion okay. the distortion isn't what makes it metal but he stopped calling these songs the metal version of Katy Perry's Eye of the Tiger or whatever that song is called. Um, that's so, not what makes it metal. You're just putting distortion on her well, song. It's still pop. Well, this gets into interesting territory because I remember we were talking about uh, styles of music. If you transpose them into like a heavy metal band, would they be metal? And I guess that's maybe an answer to that question. Like, do, 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 is it not? It's it's. Are you saying metal isn't really just strictly about the instrumentation? That there's, you know, if you if you poured in, uh, you know, music that is too uplifting or not in the right type of, uh, uh, you know, key signature, that it 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 won't be metal, even if it's performed in a metal manner. When you transpose music from the guitar to the piano mm -hmm. you have to decide if you're going to compose it from chord to chord note to note note to chord chord to note yep. you have to make that decision when you're making that transposition right it's I, yeah no i, I mean I there's all kinds of things you get like when, you, when you're doing like uh so number one just you know i mean and i'm not an expert on the piano but i played a little bit but i mean piano, piano is a two-handed instrument so right there you just have the, the capacity to do both a bass line and a melody that right. isn't present on the guitar. So right. transposing the guitar to the piano, I feel is maybe a little bit easier, even though a lot of the nuances get lost because there are things you can do on the guitar you can't do on piano. Transposing piano to guitar is very difficult if the song involves like a moving bass line. Um, and that's, so those kind of things are, are big considerations when you're transposing from one instrument to another. Um, 
But I'm sorry, I don't know if I answered the question at all or if I just added no, confusion. No, no, I, I, I think that's enough for me to, to, to make my point. I think when you're borrowing this stuff, you you can't just make a one-to-one transition. There, there's a band called Redemption. They're a prog metal band. Uh, Ray Alder from Fate's Warning used to sing with them. Uh, they had an album, Origins of Ruin, which is just one of the best progressive metal albums out there. It is so freaking good. And everything before and after sort of feels like it's not the same band. They did an album where they did a bunch of covers of non-prog, non-metal songs. So they took uh, Edge of the Blade by Journey and turned it into a prog song. Except they didn't. It's still Edge of the Blade by Journey, just with their instruments and their... They didn't prog it up, so to speak. Yeah. So it's nice that they did a cover of it. But don't tell me it's progressive metal. You didn't make give me a progressive version of Tori Amos's whatever song that is, the one about the boys that want to get with her. I think that's all of her songs. But <laughs> they they didn't change anything about it, but they wanted to put their progressive stamp on it, and I don't think it works. And I love the band, and I love the previous album, but I have to look at it with a clinical eye and say, that's not prog. That's not prog metal. Well... It's, I mean, something definitely like, okay, remember, I don't know if you listened to it, but I sent you the, the no, Pris, no, uh, no Presents for Christmas song on Facebook when we were uh, chatting a little bit. And you sent a lot of links. Yeah, Mr. yeah. So, yeah, I, I got a little crazy. But but there's a there's a Merciful Fate. Maybe it was King Diamond. I think it was a Merciful Fate song. Um, no no uh, Presents for Christmas. And, you know, it's got Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in there. And... You know, it's it's a fun song, but it definitely doesn't feel like metal. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a, it, 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 the, 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 the Rudolph music just sucks out any metal vibe that's being established right. by the rest of the instruments. Um, and again, I think it's I, I, I enjoy the song. I like the fact that they're able to emulate a, a genre of music that that uh, is way outside of metal. It shows right. it shows how skilled the musicians were. But but it definitely doesn't feel like metal, and I think like um, a lot. Of, I get that. Like what I see a lot of these channels, which I do watch, where somebody's like, "I'm going to take the songs from Mario Brothers and turn them into metal." Um, it, it very rarely works for me. I think yeah. part of the reason, though, isn't because you can't do that. I feel like nobody really seems to understand what metal is when they're when they're trying to create something, when they're trying right. to turn something into metal. I feel like their definition is off, and so they're just right from the beginning they've already failed do you know what i mean right and, and we're right back to where we started with all this which is one you have to master the ingredients two you have to understand what's in the recipe if you're going to make a roux you need to know why the oil the butter and the flour go together to make the roux if you're a cook and the same is true with music you have to understand why we stripped out the blues to ha- and still created this industrial town of Leeds sound in this old <laughs> black sabbath song or this old Judas priest song why did we strip out the blues what is the blues uh like what 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 anti-metal effect is the blues having i think well i first of all i think it oddly enough it's a way to not rob the blues of its heart because the the blues is about your your personal suffering Mm -hmm. right if you're writing a bluesy song you're talking about something bad that happened to you and you can't use that structure to write a song about um, falling in love unless it has heartache in it. Yeah. So if you want to write a new kind of song, but still borrow that structure, you've got to pull out the twang. 
Mm-hmm. The twang can't be in there anymore. You've got to uh, you've got to add the riffs. You've got to add the a little bit of the distortion. You've got to add that different timing signature. You've got to give the other instruments an opportunity to shine because most of the blues is acoustic, right? The other instruments aren't really doing much in the blues. It's the guitar player and the singer. Well, I mean, it depends on the blues. Like, uh, I mean, like you know, they, they, you do start getting you know electrified blues, but I mean, sure, it's, uh, sure. I, I, and I like us. Uh, is it Seawater Steve? Is that his name? Sailor Steve? I'm not sure. He, I'm not sure. He plays a two-stringed guitar, and he plays the blues. And he's a fantastic musician. I think he's fantastic. But it's, I still wouldn't listen to him as my only source of of income. But uh, I I think you have to pull all that stuff out of the blues. And I'm not a devotee of the blues either, so that makes it difficult to talk about. But if you want to sing about new things like black magic and you want to talk about, in the case of deep purple singing about a hotel burning to the ground, mm. uh, you, well, that actually song is quite bluesy. Um, that's a bad example. But well, if you I mean, want to talk about black magic, like black Sabbath was doing, you have to strip away some of those bluesy elements. Well, and the thing is there's, um, uh, uh, it's sort of like there, there's a contradiction here too, because the, you don't really have metal without blues. Like blues definitely ultimately gives rise. To, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I get it. I get uh, it. Uh, uh, and it, it, we're back to what I said about Fugazi, right? Fugazi's song structure led to emo. Yeah. Um, but the emo kids pulled out all the heart from what Fugazi was doing, and then they just used the 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 chord structures that he had created. Well, and I think I think there's something inherent in metal where it sort of does this so like you sort of you know so metal is sort of birthed a little bit by the blues and it jettisons so much of the blues right and there's this ongoing debate in metal about the role of punk music right and i feel like you don't really like the thrash music sound doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you factor in punk do you know what i mean right like right um and 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 that's an idea a lot of metal people don't like because punk is generally held in low regard by a lot of metal fans right or traditionally it has been um and so I feel like metal does this thing where it absorbs a little bit from a style, but then it rejects the style. Do you know what I mean? It's so like, that's trash. You know, we're, we're going to take like this one component of it, but we're going to reject everything else about it. Right. And, you know, right. and it sort of does that with classical too. You know what I mean? You're never, you know, like that's why I sent you that Danzig thing, that, um, that black aria thing. And the, uh, you know, the, the, you can't go full and that, and that, by the way, that album is not full classical. That, that album is just Danzig dicking around on a, on a, on a keyboard. But, but that was the attempt. And I, I, I feel like metal, you, you can't go full symphony with metal. Do you know what I mean? Like we have symphonic metal and it's a subgenre, but it's, it's not like a sustainable, uh, I don't know. There's something, unmetal about abs- uh, absorbing all of the trappings of classical music you know you can absorb yeah. a certain num- amount of it but not all of it and maybe this is kind of getting to the the mashup thing you were talking about um right but uh but but i definitely do think metal has this tendency to absorb a little bit from something but ultimately reject a lot of the other aspects of it almost in a way that is sort of uh, there's a sense of ridicule like when I was in my metal band, we used to make fun of the bluesy guys. Do you know what I mean? The guys who played blues to us were were people that we sort of, uh, I don't know, we, we, we thought less of them because they liked to bend notes for some reason. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I get it. 
So, and I mean, obviously these aren't ideas that I still cleave to, but it's present in the development of this style. There's, there's, there's definitely like metal, I think more than a lot of other genres defines itself by identifying the things it doesn't like in other genres and absolutely avoiding being those things. Do you know what I mean? Right. So, I think that is a great definition. That is fantastic. Yeah, it's taken so while to get here, but I, th- I think it's a, um, I think it's a, yeah, I, I, that definitely seems like part. And it, it kind of explains the attitude too. Do you know what I mean like the, the, like the the mentality of metal is is so harsh in how it deals with the things it doesn't like, um, and 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 you see that when like you know, fans are very wary of like just how many ballads in a band can get away with on an album, right? Like right. There's, there's only so much, we want the music to be melodic, but we don't want an overabundance of melody. If there's too much, people start to get suspicious of what's going on. Do you know what I mean? There's yeah. a, so, um, so yeah, so and, I don't know. I, I don't know if that takes us anywhere interesting, but I, I did want to get, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. It does take us somewhere interesting. It takes us to synthesizers and keyboards, which we were talking about before we recorded. Yep before we turn on the recording because there was this attempt to introduce them into metal in the early eighties. I want to say 83, 84. And I, I knee jerked. I know everybody I know knee jerked. Yeah. We didn't like it. Seventh son of a seventh son by Iron Maiden has way too much synthesizer. Now here, um, here's, here's where we're going to have an interesting discussion. Cause I love seventh son of a seventh son, but I totally uh, understand what you're saying yeah. about synth. Um, yeah. Seventh Son of a Seventh Son is one of my favorite Iron Maiden albums, largely because it sounds so different from all their other stuff. I mean, it sounds I, a bit like uh, Somewhere in Time, but yeah, but they took it and they really went in the, heavily in that direction with Seventh Son, and it's got it's got all the other stuff we were talking about, like the the, the amazing time signature changes and crazy, you know, just crazy math with the notes. Like some of the notes in that album are ridiculous, and you know, and also it's got like it's probably their most medieval sounding of all their albums. Do you know what I mean? Like it re- like the, the melodies of those songs to me really feel Renaissance inspired, uh, you know, in a w- like, like in a way that, um, hallowed be thy name felt, do you know what I mean? Just sort of like really drawing on that, that, that yeah. Renaissance style of melody. Um, but go on. Cause I, I'm curious. I do want to hear your thoughts about seven son. Well, I absolutely love it now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I bought the cassette. I, that's how old I am. I bought the cassette while I was on a road trip for school in this small town, and I immediately started listening to it on my Walkman. And I must have listened to it about 20 times before I got home. Mm-hmm. And I immediately hated it because <laughs> of the synth, yep. right? I heard that synthesizer on Moonchild as soon as it opens. And I just, where are they going? What is this? This isn't metal. You can't do this. Because I'm 17 and I'm a puritanical asshole and i'm not going to allow synthesizers in metal well, i'm in charge god damn it well and also and, on peace of mind they specifically said we didn't use synthesizers in this right, album, and they were proud right, yeah, they, were, you know, they were staunchly yeah. against them for the longest time and then of course you dio has them too on rainbow in the dark and then judas priest introduced them in the worst way possible and turbo lover but that's another story i do i do i I, that's actually a burning question of mine is your thoughts on turbo lover but we'll hold that in abeyance um (laughs) i'm already getting angry um so i listened to it i listened to it i listened to it and once i could get past the synthesizer right and once it had become part of the the enjoyment of listening to the album because i was still going to listen to it it was still iron maiden 
and it was still structurally sound except for that song can i play with madness i can't stand it one of their worst i, songs I agree with you 100 percent. that's the song on the album i don't like it's the yeah. way and, and there's I, there's always one of those poppy radio friendly tracks that feels like we're built specifically for bruce's voice and nobody yeah. else's instrumentation and bruce just ruins that with those sour notes and that bad harmonizing with himself it's just a bad song um yeah i i can't i can't follow the melody of that song very yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it just, I, I i skip it now but the rest of the album i think the guitar solo in seventh son of a seventh son is their best guitar solo yes yes 100 percent, 100 percent. i think the overall structure of the album the way every song ties together it was genius and without being over the top in your face if dream theater does a thematic album they punch you in the face with it yeah Every song here is going to be about the 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 Illuminati. Look yeah. for it. Look for every single reference and every single line. But these songs all stood up by themselves. Yes. And yet belong to the whole, which I really like. And then it even ends on a song that makes you want to start the album all over again. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And everything about that album, except for the synthesizer and that Can I Play With Madness, is just them at the top of their game. And it's also, if you took out the synthesizer, it would actually be quite a heavy album. That's the interesting thing about it. There's, there's yeah. Some, there's some it, really heavy stuff in there. Um, mm-hmm. it's certain songs, at least. But you don't, it doesn't feel heavy because the synth sort of, I don't know, it kind of, it does give it sort of a cloudy vibe. Do you know what I mean? I, th- if, I think If you had known me back then, if you could have seen my eyes, because I've got the headset on. <laughs> And I'm, I've got the tape in. As soon as that at the beginning of Moonchild comes in, after after he sings the seventh son of a seventh son at the beginning, um, he does that little rhyme, uh, acapella, and then the song starts. I my eyes were the size of dinner plates. I just said, "What the fuck happened to my band? What is going on?" You know, it's funny. I I was in a death metal band that became a doom metal band. And I remember I was the guy in the band that liked Iron Maiden. And I was trying to convince my singer that we should do some of their songs. And I chose Moonchild as my... That was that was the argument I was going to pitch to this guy. And he was like a death metal fan and a Megadeth fan and like into the harder edge stuff. And so yeah. he... The, he heard the first few notes and he was like, no, no, this is not, um, this is not good music. I'm sorry. So it's, you're, you're, you were, you, you, a lot of people felt like you did about, about that music at the time. Um, I hope he's listening and he can appreciate the fact that we all hated that song. The first time we listened to it, it took a lot of realism. I didn't, I genuinely liked it the first time. And I, and it's funny uh, I'm because, picking you off the podcast. You're done. <laughs> well, I don't know what it was. The the keyboards didn't even I didn't even notice the keyboards. Do you know what I mean? It didn't even occur to me there are keyboards in this song. But I think that's because keyboards never really bothered me that much. Um because I didn't maybe I didn't associate them with the things that other people did. I had a keyboard as a, uh when I was when I was in a band and I used to use the thing all the time to help me write music. Do you know what I mean? Because I could I could record like a uh uh a string track and then i could you know record another track for the bass line another track for uh piano and off of that i would somehow cobble together something on the guitar and uh and so i just it just never bothered me but also i the first band that i got into before i got into metal was the doors and i always kind of liked the sound of the electric organ and my uncle remember i told you the story about my uncle he was an electric organ player so it just never bothered me. I do think that the problem with synth in the eighties is different from the problem of keys in the seventies In the seventies. 
you have bands like Deep Purple and um, uh, Moody Blues that incorporate a lot of these electric organs, but they're very powerful. So it would be very complimentary to heavy metal to sort of use that kind of an organ sound. But in the 80s, you had a, a much more airy sound going on in the synthesizer, and it didn't really pair as well with heavy metal, I think. I think that was really, the, like like exactly the stuff you're talking about, like on, on Seventh Son, the, the opening keyboard intro, it, it doesn't make you feel like you're in a heavier place. It makes you feel like you're floating in the sky. Do you know what I mean? It, right. It, it, it just creates a vibe that's maybe a little bit off for heavy metal. Um, and, 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 it, and it, but also, I, I guess my question would then be, what's your feeling about bands that use keyboard to create like a sense of symphonic atmosphere. Are you okay with that? Or does that bother you? Does that, you know, especially with keyboards as they've gotten better, you know, just technologically. I am, uh, I'm still pretty puritanical in my metal taste, but my mind has certainly opened for a lot of stuff, especially if we're talking about progressive metal, right? Kevin Moore appears on a couple of, uh, fate's warning albums and he adds so much to the sound that because he's a fucking musical genius uh that you cannot or you can't get mad and say that's not metal yeah. that is absolutely 100 percent the sound that should be in the song say still remains which is a, a classic anthem for fate's warning um so i think people that know what they're doing when they bring it in they bring the organ. Opeth brings the organ in on their last four albums mm-hmm. which has just been outstanding now, they- and you is it like a pipe, pipe organy sound, or is it like w- what kind of organ are they playing? It it sounds like one of those. Uh, it it's hard to define. I guess I don't I don't know all the different kinds of organs, but it has it has sort of an orchestral bit of an orchestral sound to it, and it's okay. it's used correctly. But it's also got a bit of the if you took the Doors and married it with Deep Purple, mm-hmm. you would get that kind of organ sound. On say a song like Era or Sorceress, okay, um, which I recommend if you're if you want to hear it, listen to uh, Era. Um, l- listen to the Sorceress by uh, by Opeth. That's a really good song for hearing how they do the organ. But I I think I told you to listen to Cusp of Eternity and uh, Eternal Rains Will Come. I think I did listen to Cusp, of, but we listen to a yeah. lot of music, so a lot of it is sort of in a blender in my head. But I'll yeah, take, yeah, I'll yeah. make a point of revisiting uh, the Opeth stuff because both you and Pete have mentioned Opeth. And yeah. uh, I mean, I've listened to them, but I haven't gotten deep into them. They're, uh, now, I'll tell you right now, I don't like their old stuff. Pete mm-hmm. might like their old stuff, but I cannot do his death growls, I, despite how just genius the the rest of the uh, augmentation of the sound is. Well, I do want to talk about death growls, but I, I think Pete's also into the newer stuff. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'm sorry. Go, go on. Go on. Um, so I, I forget where we were. That's okay. That's okay. Well, we're well, talking actually, about organs. I think I answered the question. Well, yeah. So the really what we were talking about was whether keyboards were were metal, and you definitely say they're not. And I I would say my answer is probably they definitely are an ambiguous instrument when it comes to metal. Like there's there's yeah. there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of problems raised by the presence of a keyboard for sure. Um, the the problem with with any kind of answer when we're start, when, any kind of answer to that question is. Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden are the big three. Yeah. And if you want to throw Metallica in, you can, but I don't think you should. Um, and Judas well, don't you think and, you're missing and, something if you don't pull in one of the later thrash metal bands? Or 
if it... okay, then I'll pull in Slayer. Slayer never, <laughs> okay, fair enough. They never, they never wavered. They never sold out. Well, and what's good about bringing in Slayer is you kind of get the death metal vibe as well. So right. you get you get a hint of what else is to come. So uh, three of those four bands had two guitarists, and that right there sort of defined the blueprint for metal. Mm-hmm. And there were lots of bands. We talked about King Crimson offline, right? I think the first ever metal song created was 21st Century Schizoid Man. I think that's the first metal song ever made. That has three drummers, right? If we'd allowed that to be the blueprint for what a metal band is, the the sound would be very different from what we actually have now. And yeah. So the blueprint for metal gets defined early, and when you pick it up as a child, it's very different than when you pick it up as an adult. So my formative years taught me, no, metal has two guitar players. It has one drummer. Yeah. It has one singer who has a wide range between – uh, uh, the lower range, and in the case of Rob Halford, can hit a high C, mm-hmm. right? So these are these are definitions that I didn't have the words for when I was thirteen, yeah. but I knew the parameters pretty well. And so, if I had to define it today, and I'd never heard metal before, my definition would be really different because there's so many more ingredients in the complete goulash that is metal. Well, uh, well, I do want to ask this. How do you feel? I mean, I guess one of the defining traits of metal these days is just the sheer number of subgenres. Yeah. Um, There's and, 30, and, 40. Yeah. And, but, you know, when I got into metal, like, there weren't that many. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think, we, you know, death and doom were still kind of being invented. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, uh, and then over the course of the 90s, <laughs> I feel we got this proliferation. Is the, is the subgenre thing maybe kind of a problem for metal? Like, does it make it... You, when you have all these subgenres, how many bands can actually fit into each subgenre, right? Like, it's not that many. So, there, it, I have I, a really long answer again. Go ahead. Those. That's okay. I, we, I, I'm one of those people that stitches together a lot of different theory to answer questions. Uh-huh. So, we're, we have to go back to the social movement that is metal and punk <laughs> okay. to answer your question. First of all, punk is a social movement. It's not a music style. That's yep. one of the things people get wrong about punk. And it's why the word gets used wrong when we're mashing up fiction styles. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is steampunk. Where the fuck's the punk? Well, yeah, that guy's yeah, got yeah. a nose ring. That's not punk. Uh-huh. Punk is a social movement. It was about young white trash kids in urban centers who had been left behind because of white flight um, of the middle class into the suburbs. And they had no identity anymore. And they were trying to find themselves and they were all pool poor. And so they turned to this mostly communistic, movement that had a musical sound associated with it that made them feel like they belonged to something that's a long complicated answer that leads to metal metal was for kids who were either white trash or didn't belong who did leave it live in these suburban areas who needed to stand out because they didn't have an identity that anybody was appreciating in their in their schools right everybody belonged to some sort of clique there, yeah, That's, clicks were a big thing when we were growing up. Yeah, clicks were a yeah. very big thing. In junior high school and high school, everybody belonged to some side of click. So metal develops as a click for kids to say, leave me the fuck alone, look mm-hmm. how tough I am. Mm-hmm. So metal has to sound tough, Yeah. right? That is one of the main ingredients of metal in order for these kids to stick around for it. And the subgenres come out because, oh, Iron Maiden just added synthesizers. Well, those guys are pussies. Yeah. I'm not yeah. listening to them anymore. Um, 
And I'm obviously using the word pussy the way the kids would use it. No, I know, I know what you mean. We, uh, no, I know I, what you mean. I know. I mean, we, we use that term all the time growing up. I, I know. I know yeah. what you mean. Um, um, but I want. So, I want. I want to hold you there because I think there's. A, there's. I was thinking about this this morning, and I'm. So I was thinking about all, like like doom metal, right? And I was thinking about thrash metal and how thrash metal is so aggressive and, for lack of a better word, macho, right? It's got all of right. the sort of. But but a lot of the subgenres that came later, even though they might have had more aggressive sounds at times, they, like the, their ideas of masculinity were a little bit more fluid. We'll say, do you know what I mean? They were, right. um, and so uh, so I don't know if that ties into what you're saying about all these subgenres, but well, uh, yeah, I think the subgenres start to develop as a reaction to the the other genres that are that are moving, that are changing. Mm-hmm. Hair metal comes out, so you need to stay as far away from yeah. Motley Crue as possible. Yeah. And the only way you can do that is by liking Pantera. Yeah. Right? And I can't st- I, Pantera I can't get into. Pantera's a band I can oh, never I think they're garbage. But yeah. I, I'm using them as an example because they were when they came out, they were hard. Yeah. Right? They had Cowboys from Hell. And that yeah. song in and of itself is this uh, clarion call to say Look who we are. We're not glam metal. We're not a hair band. Yeah. Come listen to us because Metallica just did Enter Sandman, and you know yeah. they're never going to go back to being real men again, in quotes. Yeah. So these subgenres are constantly re- uh, evolving because they're a reaction to something, or in, the, in some cases where these bands are really good at what they're doing, mm-hmm. they want to... They want, they want to make what they're doing better, or they yeah. want to take it as far as they can. Um, I think Tool, Dream Theater, Fate's Warning, Queensryche, Sabotage, um, uh, Symphony X, a lot of these prog bands came along because they loved metal, but they loved instrumentation more. Okay. And so they wanted to bring their technical precision to the fore. Yeah. Even though if you listen to old metal, in order to play that well, that long, that fast, in some of these songs, you have to be technically precise. No, that's these what guys I was... want to push themselves even more. Yeah, that's what I was going to say because you, I mean, a lot of the metal that came before was already technically pretty precise. I mean, Judas yeah. Priest alone is, yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. This stuff with Iron Maiden we we're talking about, the thrash metal stuff is impossible to play if you don't have. I mean, and again, you can criticize Metallica for some for some of the performative aspects, but just taken as a whole, you look at bands like Testament and bands like Megadeth, and and a lot of the ground that. Metallica was was exploring right. you know technically this is a lot of really interesting stuff going on but but it's still crude to an extent like there's there's a big difference when I hear a prog metal band I don't just hear you know a good technical performance I hear impeccable technical performances <laughs> right, you know what I mean right, right. Uh, absolutely and and so so almost almost so that like you know somebody who's reared on thrash might be like this is too clean do you know what i mean like like that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- that's how big of a gap you get in terms of the technical performance um so i i think that uh but i feel like that's a progression that metal had naturally baked into its dna where it was just sort of an in, a constant increase of the technical like you start out with these guitarists who barely understand the blues right who are are working within that format and within those scale structures to do new and interesting things and then by the time the 80s roll around people are using all kinds of crazy music theory to to expand the sounds that are possible that's why ride the lightning is so amazing right because they're 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 legitimately like i mean if you listen to like the first metallica album and compare it to ride the lightning 
the difference in sound that's been created is is stunning and so um yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, well a lot of that is probably having a producer and also oh, absolutely absolutely and, and, and improvement in equipment and everything else uh but, but also yeah, technical understanding how harmonies song. work and stuff too you know like just yeah look how long it took dave mustaine when he made megadeth i mean first of all I feel Dave Mustaine is the Nikolai Tesla of metal uh, sometimes. Here's a guy that invented the sound for three different bands that would go on to be three of the big four. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're, you're including Slayer in that? Yeah, Slayer. Uh, uh. So Slayer, Megadeth, Metallica, and Anthrax are the big four. And a lot of people want to say Testament is part of the big five, but they just didn't make it for some reason. No, I'll five. tell you why. I, I was a Testament fan, and I can, I can say why. Testament was they were really good technical performers, but their songs lack the inspiration that yeah. uh, Slayer or Metallica or Megadeth had. I've never right. been able to get that into Anthrax, so I can't quite explain Anthrax's presence on the list. But I, I, th- I mean, still, I mean, you have to acknowledge that there, that people like Anthrax. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So Anthrax yeah. just had two so amazing. They had two albums that were just so amazing mm-hmm. that no matter what they did after that, nobody cared. Among okay. the Living was just, in 1987, it was such a punch in the head when that album came out that nobody had heard anything like that before. They had they had taken that whole San Francisco thrash sound and put their New York sensibility on it. And I think that's one of the reasons. I can't really say. But if we want to remove Anthrax from the equation, Dave Mustaine made the big three. His sound and his precision made the big three. But he's always forgotten. Metallica's name is 99 times the size of Dave Mustaine's name. Yeah, yeah. Right? When you look at the the whole of of the genre. And so the work that he's done and had to reinvent all these different times, when he left Metallica, he left them all these songs for Kill 'Em All. And they yeah. even used one of his uh uh one of his riffs and chord progressions in uh, on Ride the Lightning. I don't remember which song. So I think I it was on say. Call of Cthulhu. I think he's credited with that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and maybe Trapped Under Ice. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if he had something to do with that as well. And then he has to go and make his own music again from scratch. He makes three albums trying to find his sound. He gets to Peace Cells, which is just a masterpiece. Yeah. And then there's Rust in Peace, which is even better yeah. than Peace Cells. And here's a guy that's having to do all of this while having all these emotional issues, this drug addiction, and being kicked out of the band that he formed. How and, and I understand why he's hated, right? He's got a lot of issues. Yeah, he, but well, how he? Oh, go ahead. He's go the ahead. Dave Arneson of metal, right? Dave Arneson invented role playing games, but Gary Gygax gets the credit. Well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. Obviously, um, Metallica was just they were just more successful in terms yeah. of getting an audience. I think also the Metallica sound is maybe more palatable <clears throat> to a lot of people. Yeah, D- yeah Mustaine yeah. has a there's a harshness to Mustaine that yeah. is off-putting to your average music listener and is the thing that metal fans really like about him. And I think he he embraces the punk element more than, say, Metallica does. And so you just get that... I mean, again, it's all wrapped in in why people don't like him because his attitude and, you know, he's he's a difficult guy and you can hear it in his music that he's not he's bristly, you know? And yeah. so, uh, you know, that's that's what makes it have the sound it does. But I don't know. I feel like he's getting his due with the with the presence of all the YouTube and you know, like just things online being the way they are now. It's not like it's not like the consensus is permanent anymore. Do you know what I mean? And so you're very rapidly starting to see a lot of people call into question 
you know, uh, Metallica's quality versus Megadeth's quality because there are people breaking these things down on YouTube and people are being exposed to different points of view on the topic. Um, I don't know if he'll ever get to the level of recognition that Metallica had because yeah. I mean they're just massive. But uh, but yeah, I would agree with that assessment. And I I think when when you when you include Slayer in him contributing to sound, is that because of the thing you mentioned to me with um, with Kerry King being yeah with Kerry King yeah yeah. I, Dave Mustaine invents what's called the spider chord, um, and you can watch how he plays it online. There's some videos on Dave Mustaine's spider chord. Without the spider chord, Metallica can't do what it's doing. Slayer cannot do what it's doing. And um, there's something so I don't really know how to finish this thought. We've been talking a lot. Um, there, there's just a, something so important and groundbreaking about doing that. And that's one of those elements that you can say you have to understand what you were doing before what metal is in order to add this element to it. If he was doing uh, K-pop music and tried to add the spider chord, it wouldn't make an ounce of sense. You have to understand the genre you're working in. You have to understand the pieces that you're, that you're adding and why you're adding them. And I can see you're on Google searching no, I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to make sure I, I I know the actual notes in the spider chord. Um, I'm lo- I'm looking that up. Um, I know the spider chord, but it's uh, so. I I only have a ukulele on hand. I don't have a guitar anymore. I sold my guitar a few, uh, about four months ago, and uh-huh. uh, and so I'm one of these people where I have to pick up the guitar to sort of like I could you know I can't I can't just visualize it in my head. So I was looking it up, um, but no, I I I think that's that 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 definitely is a. Uh, uh, that that's I, I never I mean I always connected him with Metallica I never connected him with the the Slayer sound but that does make total sense to me so yeah um, and and I don't know I feel like uh, with with um, with Mustaine and this is where I want to get back into the open court I know we've been going on for a while so I won't we won't linger on this topic too long <laughs> we but, still have so much more to do on the next episode but <laughs> but you but you were talking about power chords versus open chords and yeah and now we have the spider chord which is the way I think of spider chords, and there there are other chords like that in metal, which are just right. these more grand power chords, really. Like they just sort of add. You, if you if you stack more notes onto them, you can create a really powerful sound. Um, right. and a lot of guitarists do it in different ways. Um, you know what's you know I don't know how how do you think about that topic? How do you think about open chords being used in in metal? Um, Dave Grohl played on the streets here in Seattle last weekend not not this previous weekend the weekend before that um he played right down there on the street and I, I watched a video of it and he's on his acoustic and everybody's standing around they're all playing and he played three different songs and i swear to christ i cannot tell the difference between any of the open chords he played on any of those songs he's just strumming the same exact pattern over and over and over again and open chords to me are just they're just filler for a singer to have something to sing over. Mm-hmm. I, and I know that that's a really cynical point of view because there's a lot of people doing open chords well. Yeah. Um, I love Bob Mould. I love Sugar. Um, I think that they did great jobs with open chords. But the, the And if you go far enough back, you go to Kansas and I mean, you go to a lot of well, and prog Priest, band. Judas that? Priest uses open chords all the time in their music. Um, yeah. Well, it depends on the song, but sure. Yeah. Um, and they use a lot of... Uh, and they mix it with power chords. Yeah, they don't yeah. just play an open chord. 
because they have two really proficient guitar players who know how to layer sound. Yeah. I think when I think Foo Fighters are a generic rock band. And if Dave hadn't been in Nirvana, nobody would have ever heard of the Foo Fighters. And yeah, I'm, I'm not terribly impressed with their sound. If that's, uh... I, I think they're just a perfect example. They and Kiss are a perfect example of open chords just run amok with no, with nothing pulling anything together. Mm-hmm. I, I think with open chords, you're just picking, I'm going to play these four chords. ACDC is a perfect example, right? We're going to put these four chords together and we're going to write a song. Okay. We're going to put these okay. four swords or write yeah. chords together and write a different song. When you're dealing with power chords, you're dealing with a different structure. Uh, you have to put together a riff. You have to put together different timing signatures because now you're limiting yourself in what you can do and you have to make this stronger. What, what you're because sa- you're handicapping it. What you're kind of saying is is it's not as much about just coming up with a simple po- chord progression, though there might be a chord progression present through the, the layering of the different instruments. Um, it's more about coming up with melodic phrasing through the riffs, right? Like, yeah. And, and that's more complex. That leads to a more complex... It, it's a little bit more classical in in its expression because right. it's not... It's not like, like, okay, the Beatles would be a really iconic example of the open chord, right? Like all their songs are, you know, here's like three or four chords and, you know, here's a song on top of it. And it's, it's a pretty simple method for constructing music, but, but most metal just isn't built that way. Even when it is like, take a song like fade to black, which let me see if I can, uh, okay. So I'm going to do it on ukulele. That's the ukulele. It's out of tune, but those are the four chords in Fade to Black, actually. Right. You know, just... And uh, it's it's got a four-chord core to it, but you listen to Fade to Black, and that's not what you remember, right? You don't, you know, you remember that, that build-up in the beginning, and... And the the sort of the 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 riff on the on the E chord in the start and the solo and then that it's got you know this powerful bridge in the middle. Metal is sort of about you you can have chords in it, but it's got to have something else that kind of elevates it up to metal, or or you're just basically playing something out of the Beatles. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, so, yeah. So I think I think you're right on. That. I think there's something there. It's it's not that open chords are terrible. I mean, like you said, Dave Mustaine does use open chords in some of his music, right? Like, right. Uh, uh, I think Mary Jane uses a fair amount of of open chords, and Hangar 18 is actually that's all open chords. That intro, that's that's a D minor yeah. riff, and that's what's so amazing about it is people might not quite appreciate this, but you would mention how when Dave Grohl was playing open chords, you couldn't hear anything. And it's because when you add distortion onto open chords, it sounds like noise. It just doesn't yeah. sound like anything. And somehow on Hangar 18, they managed to do open chords with distortion and you can still hear the notes. And it's, it's so clean. Yeah. That that intro is so clean. I used to play it on guitar here all the time. It's one of my favorite songs. It's it's a, it's really fun, and it's kind of like a, um, it, you know, it's a little bit of a line cliche because he's kind of chromatically going up the the neck. But it's uh, I mean, I'd have to play it to, to know if, I, if what I said is a hundred percent accurate. But it's it's a really great uh, chord progression to play. But just that you could, that somebody could make that chord progression heavy to me is still astounding. Um, it's not easy to do because uh, usually when they're doing chord progressions like that, you end up in ballad territory. And, uh, and, uh, but I think that the power chords are really the heart of heavy metal. I, I think without the power chords, you just don't, you, yeah. you don't have it. 
And 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 I feel like what happens with power chords. And again, I'm, I apologize. I have to do it on the ukulele. But you start out with these two-note power chords, like that, yeah. you know. And uh, and over time, they start they start adding octaves, or they start adding the other guitar plays a harmony on top of them, and they just get increasingly more powerful. And uh, and so you know, you listen to like a band like like Iron Maiden, and some of their power chords are are fairly thin by later standards. Do you know what I mean? Like that's why I think. When I showed my death metal singer Iron Maiden, even though they had distorted power chords in their songs, and again there was I, I chose a very bad song to introduce him to Iron Maiden with, um, the they they came across to him as being too light because it didn't have two additional notes to it that you would normally hear if you were listening to a death metal song. Because in death metal they're they're gonna have like an octave and they're gonna have. Uh, you know, it's it's basically going to be two power chords stacked on top of each other in death metal. Um, right. And so. Iron Maiden has three guitar players now. Yeah, which so the well, harmonizing they've got going on is huge. No, and that but that, and that's what they're all about. They can effectively do. They can play a chord between all three guitarists, which is actually really amazing. That's a um right. that 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 that's a a whole other level of 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 harmonic guitar. Because uh, usually you can only do you know two part harmonies with two guitars unless you're particularly right. you know unless unless they're both playing two notes or something, but um, but yeah no I I love Iron Maiden's new music I think it uh I think it I think it's it, it's 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 they've kind of moved away from the sound that they had in the eighties I I don't know where I would categorize them anymore in terms of where they fit in the metal genre but but they do a lot of interesting things and i and it and it and and it, and i think that they uh still feel like a vital band so i uh, i hated final frontier final like, frontier I, was a little hard to listen to i i will agree with that a matter of life and death was i mean they hadn't done an album that good since seventh son in my opinion no that that's the one that i usually go back to and listen to. a matter of life and death. brave new world i i still like to listen to Sure, um, sure, but it's it's just them making an album. Yeah, <laughs> that was them. We're back together, so yeah. let's just make something easy to show that we know what we're doing. Well, and also it was just the fact that you were hearing Dickinson again on a Maiden album. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 you were hearing Adrian Smith again. Do you know what I mean? The fact yeah. that you know, so it was just it was just an Iron Maiden fan's dream. Um, and I like the. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say I think Adrian and Dave Murray they. They played so well together that they they layered on one another so well that 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 alone would have made Iron Maiden superstars. Well, even and, oh, go ahead. Even without the rest of it, but that's all I had to say. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say I think that they that they're also a good contrast with each other. You don't hear it until Adrian Smith departs from the band, but yeah, you kind of need that. Like Dave Murray is one of my favorite guitarists and he's the style that I tried to emulate when I played. And Adrian right. Smith is a little bit more and again, it's just my impression from listening to albums, maybe I've identified people incorrectly, so people could certainly feel free to comment and disagree with me. But I feel like Adrian Smith is a little bit more blues, a little bit more hard rock in his sound. He's he's heavy, but like he's got like a little bit of a more pentatonic vibe than Dave Murray kind of has. And Dave Murray has a lot of legato and there's just sort of like a, a really smooth sound to a lot of his lead playing. And I think when you put those two together, you get you get a really good, hard but melodic sound. And when Adrian Smith goes away, 
there's a lot of other reasons why No Prayer for the Dying sort of uh, falls for a lot of people. But I think I think the fact that the two lead guitarists were who who had sort of been so in sync with one another were no longer in sync because now you have this new guitarist they're sort of fitting into the band and and you can you can hear like they're not actually playing the notes together anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, they, they sound like like you can hear a little delay between one of the players, and I think it's just because they don't know each other as well anymore. You know, so yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, somebody once said they. You spend your band spends so much time together for so long that you, your sound develops from the sheer camaraderie of being yeah. together in a band in a, in a way that you have a kinship with a bandmate that you can't ever have with anybody else, and so you're always those two people or those five people are always going to be able to make music together in a way that they can't make if you pick any of them and put them in a supergroup. It's a it's a bonding experience being yeah. in a band. It's definitely a bonding experience, um, and so yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think that that album also kind of created an unfair impression of Janet Gerst because you, you know, you hear that and you think, well, he's responsible. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and really, he's just the new guy who's kind of he needs to bond with the band. And so, uh, you know, now I can appreciate a lot of his playing when I hear him on the newer albums because, especially when I see the songs that he's written and I realize what he's contributed to the band. Right. Um, but, but I think initially I was, I was a little resentful towards him because, uh, you know, you know, and again, it what I didn't mind no prayer for the dying as much as a lot of people did, but it still is definitely, uh, you know, it, it's, it's where Iron Maiden starts to, it feels like things are starting to get shaky when, when you get to no prayer for the dying and, um, you know, it kind of continues through the nineties. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I don't know. I think we, I think we've, we've covered probably too many topics we still left out a lot of things um but I there's think so much to talk about metal yeah. so much uh you know I, I wanted to ask if metal is still alive but i fear i think that's too long of a topic for us to get into um the uh, uh well it's still alive for me i mean i'm still going out and looking for bands and since we recorded the first podcast i i must have listened to about 50 different bands that I'd never heard before. Yeah. Just looking for new stuff. I've just been going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole looking yeah. for new music. And and there's a lot of bad out there, by the way. There, yeah. <laughs> it, it yeah. takes a long time to find the stuff that you like. But, um, well, but I think people love people love what they love. And yeah. I, I don't think it's ever going to die officially. I just think it won't be uh, financially viable. Yeah, I don't know that it is financially viable at this point or not. I don't know how much these bands are making. But I will say that one thing I forgot about was exactly what you just said, was there is a lot of trash. And a lot of what we do now, like you you, you, you only listen to the good stuff from when you were growing up, right? So you only listen yeah. to, to like the Judas Priest and the Iron Maiden and all these things that were great. And you forget about the bands, that, the albums you bought that just were total garbage. And, uh, uh, you know, just di didn't... Uh, you know, you know, they maybe at the time sounded close enough to the stuff you were listening to that you would listen to it. But now when you hear it, it just sounds like, you know, it doesn't even sound like it's worth wasting any time listening to. Uh, I, I didn't have the vernacular for it as a child, but I could go to Music Plus up on Whittier Boulevard when I was a kid and I could just look at an album cover and tell whether or not the album was going to be any good. Um, you yeah. you had at a very early, very quick age, you learned, holy crap, that Accept cover looks really bad. I bet those guys suck. And sure enough, Accept sucked. And 
that happens, especially I think as a child, because you learn so fast. Yeah. I think that happens because you already know what your taste is. I really like Judas Priest. I want to listen to stuff that only sounds like Judas Priest. Well, they right? had great I only like covers. Iron Maiden. I only like Rush or Triumph or whatever the band is. Judas Priest probably had the best album covers, in my opinion, because they yeah. they, they hold yeah. up over time. They don't look hokey in, in hindsight, the way that a lot of metal bands sometimes do look. And uh, But I agree with you. I just think sometimes those covers could lead you astray. I, I, I thought I knew what albums... I would like based on the appearance, but sometimes I would get an album and I would, and I, you know what it was? You wouldn't always be able to identify the subgenre just by the cover. And yeah, no, that's really true. That's yeah. Very and true. so sometimes you'd get one and I'd be like, well, I don't know if this is going to be clean vocals or growl vocals or yeah. what, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and if I wanted clean, you know, I, and I got growl, I might not be happy. Um, so, you know, there, there's, there's that part of it too. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think I think we got a lot more to cover next time. I, I I still I still have like a whole list of questions that we didn't even get to. Um, so well, I really wanted to. Sl- I, I had a whole question that was dedicated to us bashing Van Halen, and uh, and I, <laughs> I I just wanted to spend ten or twenty minutes. Just how know. is it possible for a band to be around that that long and have two good songs? How is it possible? I well, just don't get it. It. Well, it, any anybody would 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 have good two good songs after that amount of time. But I, I think I I don't think the problem was in the technical side or even in the songwriting side. It was just in the attitude for me for that band yeah. just felt totally off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but we'll that's save that for another time. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll we'll definitely save it for another time. So so we will let you go, and we will be back on with another episode, and we'll probably get into a more specific topic next time. Uh, we're still sort of covering the what is metal ground, but I don't know. Maybe next episode, if we have residual stuff we need to tackle, we'll get into it. And uh, and yeah, so we'll be back on. And until then, we will talk to you later.